Well, good morning. I hope you're doing okay as you tune into this week's message. My name is Rich, and it's my great privilege to stand in front of the orange wall today and to bring you some words from the Sermon on the Mount, this series that we've been in, if you've been with us through uh, almost all of lockdown, uh, this uh, sermon that Jesus gives, his vision of what it means to be human. And we're going to dive in and this morning see three sentences that he says all about the theme of forgiveness. That's what we're thinking about today. This most beautiful and releasing and cleansing and life-giving and liberating experience that so many of us know from our walks with God that God incredibly has decided not to count our sins against us, not to tut at every wrong we do and use it against us, but rather he's acted in history in the death of his son on the cross to deal with our sin so that he can forgive us, so that he can wash us and cleanse us and lift the burden of guilt from us. And and many of us know what it is to walk with a sense of joy and, and cleansing from being forgiven by God. It's an amazing thing to be forgiven. And to give the gift of forgiveness is almost an equally powerful privilege. You know, to extend forgiveness to another person is one of the most radical and life-changing things we can do. Forgiveness has the power to release into our homes and our families and our church and our city and our world the supernatural power of grace, of undeserved kindness. It has the power, forgiveness does, to interrupt the unending cycles of bitterness and rage and grudges and revenge and backbiting and being a snake and shaming and rejection that dominate not only our public discourse, not only our online lives so much of the time, but if we're honest, also our inner conversations and even our thought life about others, even those that we know well and love dearly, we can harbour unforgiveness. See, the reality is that though extending forgiveness is, is, is radical and life-changing, it's also really challenging to do, isn't it? Don't you just know that feeling of someone wronging you and you just long to hold it against them? Maybe it's just me. Uh, if it is, don't hold it against me. See, any of us with a modicum of self-awareness know just how instinctively inclined and entrenched we are in just ways that perpetuate the pain and the hurt and the angst and the anger that is done to us by us lashing out with it in return. That's in big hurts and small everyday things as well. And I tell you what, if you can relate to that and, and you know that you're inclined against forgiving people, today Jesus wants to challenge that in you and me head on. And I hope you're sitting comfortably in your home or wherever you are as we get into this, because if I do my job right this morning, in about 20, 25 minutes or so, you are not going to be comfortable. Because Jesus says some stuff in these three sentences in Matthew chapter 6 that shake us out of our complacency. You know, sometimes God does want to comfort us with his words. Sometimes he wants to shake us out of our comforts. And I think these words are designed to trouble us and awaken in us an urgency to make sure that we obey Jesus radically in this area. And I hope that at the end of this talk, 
you will be not just a hearer of the word, but a doer of the word. And that this will catalyze in our family of churches a wave of life-changing, undeserved grace that pours through and out of our lives into Birmingham and beyond. That is what I've been praying. Are you ready? Let's get into it. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 12. He's encouraging us to pray and teaching us through something called the Lord's Prayer. And he says this, pray like this, forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. And then he explains in verse 14 and 15, if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your father will not forgive your sins. What's Jesus saying here about forgiveness? I think what he's doing is he's tying together two things that we love to keep separate. He takes what I'm going to call the vertical forgiveness, that is God's forgiveness of us, and he binds it and links it and ties it and fixes it and welds it and all the words you want to use, links it inseparably together with our horizontal forgiving of others. Jesus is saying that forgiveness flowing to you is tied to forgiveness flowing through you. And we tend to think that we can keep those things separate. If you're anything like me, I tend to pretty much presume that, you know, God's going to forgive me and that's kind of a done deal. And yet over here in my life, in another discussion, oh yeah, obviously I'm like, irritated with her and obviously like that person who did this to someone I love is not going to be really accepted by me and I, I, I harbour those feelings and I mull them and I even sort of rejoice in them as some sort of kind of righteous thing and think that that's fine because over here back to this vertical thing I'm forgiven by God right and Jesus is having none of that distinction He is raising the stakes massively by teaching us that our horizontal relating to others is not a small issue in a corner. It is tied up with our very standing with God. And here's what I want to do for the rest of the time. I I want to simply explore how is that the case? In what sense are those things related? In what sense is our vertical stuff with God linked to our horizontal stuff with others. And it's going to get slightly confusing because I want to say four things and there's going to be tons of sub points and I'm not even going to know where I am at some point. So it's going to be a bit of a deluge of stuff. Um, And one of the things I'm going to say is a way that people have linked the horizontal and the vertical that's unhelpful and we need to reject And then I'm going to say three ways that I think the Bible does link those two things. Am I being clear with you at the moment? And as I say, for all of that, there's going to be sub points galore. And so I felt it might be merciful to give you the one sentence summary of this talk before I dive into many a sentence. Here it is. If you need to log off and go and do something more interesting, here it is. You need to forgive everyone who's ever hurt you. You urgently need to forgive 
everyone who has ever hurt you. That's kind of the point of today's talk. But for those who are keen and are willing to stick around, um, let's get into it. I want to look at a common way that people have understood these verses that is really unhelpful and that is not what they're saying and we need to get really clear on that. Some people have said that these verses teach that our forgiving of others earns or motivates God's forgiveness of us. That is that we need to become really great forgivers and that in light of that at some point God goes poor fair play they're doing really well at that or at least pretty well or at least better than most and so now in light of that I'm going to forgive them and I just want to say a couple of things about that quickly one is that that is pretty much the logic of a, a huge amount of world faiths that when we progress in our holiness or our righteousness or our devoutness and we become merciful and forgiving we then believe and hope that God who is merciful and forgiving will forgive us in the end but we're not totally sure but we we hope and that is not what Christianity teaches and yet I would say that on the surface of it it seems that that's what Jesus is saying here if we only had this verse I think that is what it would be saying it seems to be saying that if you forgive people then God will forgive you and if you don't then he won't but whenever we're interpreting the Bible and trying to understand it and get it from its context and its culture into ours, we need to be careful of treating verses in isolation. That's how you end up with, well, basically weird cults, okay? When you take one thing that scripture says and you, you think that that's the only thing that the Bible says on that issue and so you make that absolutely the only final word on the subject. And yet the reality is that the Bible gives a whole range of uh, styles and, and, and authors and different angles on these things. And that our duty as followers today in the 21st century is to take the whole scope of what the Bible teaches about a subject and seek to hold it in tension and understand it wisely in light of all the things that are said about it. And we know that the whole of Scripture explicitly rejects the idea that we earn forgiveness from God by being really good at forgiving on many, many occasions. I'm going to show you just a few. Uh, Ephesians 1 verse 6 says this, In him, that's Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, that's his death on the cross, the forgiveness, there it is, of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. How do we get forgiven? Well, this verse says through his blood, and through the riches of his grace, not through becoming really good at forgiving. Ephesians 2 verse 5 says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. What were we doing to promote and provoke and, and cause God's great mercy to forgive us? Well, this verse says that we were dead in our trespasses. And it's therefore by his grace that we've been saved, not by our goodness at forgiving. Romans 5 is a chapter that has the exact same message. Romans 5 verse 6, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Amazing news that we who are ungodly can be forgiven by God. Not only those who are really great at stuff. 
And Romans 5 verse 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so the whole message of the New Testament and really the whole shape of the gospel and the message of the whole story of scripture is not that you get really good at forgiving and then God will forgive you in the end, but that God forgives you by his grace and his mercy and saves you when you could do nothing for yourself and pours on you his forgiveness. And so whatever the link between the horizontal and the vertical, we know what it is not. It is not a relationship of earning. Now, oh, that all being said, what is the relationship between the vertical and the horizontal? Here are three ways that the Bible speaks of it that I think are really helpful for us. Firstly, our forgiving others is necessary evidence of God's forgiving of us. It does not earn God's forgiveness but it reveals it, it evidences it, it proves it. When we forgive others, we aren't twisting God's arm to forgive us. We are revealing that we are those who have embodied the forgiveness of God that we've already received. A couple of analogies to help us with this. Uh, Analogies of a fruit tree and a fountain. Let's take the fruit tree to start with. Uh, Let's say it's an apple tree. Let me ask you this question. Is the apple that's hanging from an apple tree, what makes the tree an apple tree? No, the fruit does not have the power to work backwards into the tree and create apple treeness. No, it's fruit. The apple tree is already an apple tree, but the apple reveals is necessary evidence that it's an apple tree. And if you go to an orchard, stick with the analogy that's quite painful to teach, let alone listen. Uh, If you go to an orchard and there are tons of apple trees all around and then in the middle there's one massive log stood up among the trees that doesn't have any apples on it, you would be fair to ask the question, is this really an apple tree? Because it seems to lack the necessary evidence. I think that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, if you don't forgive others, then you lack the necessary evidence that you are someone who has come to God for forgiveness. Because if you had come to God for forgiveness, and if you were experiencing the forgiveness of God, and if you'd come to God and accepted his grace and his mercy and his kindness, you simply would bear the fruit of forgiveness in your life. Or another analogy of a fountain. Let's uh, say that you go to a fountain and at the bottom of the fountain, kind of this cascading thing of water, at the bottom of the fountain, there is no water. Something has gone seriously wrong, hasn't it? Because a fountain should flow down and should, there should be water at the bottom. Now, at best, there's a serious blockage somewhere, right, which is stopping the water coming down. And that's a real problem. And for the fountain to be healthy, you need to get in there and get rid of that blockage so that the the water can flow again as it should. That's at best. At worst, there is no water coming in at the top at all. And that's why the bottom is dry. It's a bit of a stretch, but do you see what it's saying? It's saying that if in your life, there is only coldness and hardness and dryness, then either there's a blockage 
and it needs to be sorted and God's forgiveness and mercy needs to flow through you again and out to others. Or you need to question whether there is forgiveness coming in at the top at all. Do you see how at the same time he's saying it's incredibly important not to earn God's forgiveness, but to reveal it and to evidence it. He's saying if waves of forgiveness do not come through your life, you need to seriously ask, have they come into my life at all? Now quickly, let's caveat. It's important. This doesn't mean that forgiveness isn't hard. It's excruciating to forgive even small things for me. It's really hard. And actually that's biblical. It cost God the life of his son to win our forgiveness. And so forgiveness, of course, is costly. In fact, it will feel like a deathly sacrifice. And it doesn't mean that it's instant. Many acts of forgiveness are lifelong processes and decisions repeatedly over and over again to step into it and to keep going and and to take those steps towards things. And it doesn't mean that there aren't consequences and that, 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 that every relationship you just need to, everything's going to reconcile, hey presto. No, the Bible is much more realistic than that. And it knows that things are complicated. But in the end, if you, through your life, persist in unforgiveness, Jesus' words here are meant to be a wake-up call to you. Are you really someone, can you really say that you're someone who has experienced the waves of God's mercy if ultimately you refuse to pass it on to others. That's the first way that the Bible explains this relationship. Here's the second, that our forgiveness of others is to be modelled on or is to imitate or is to be like God's forgiveness of us. That is that we should forgive one another and those who've wronged us as Christ has forgiven us in the same way that his forgiving of us is a a template for us to follow. So it begs the question, how does God forgive? If you want to know how you should think about forgiveness, how you should treat someone who's wronged you, you are to look at how God has treated us. And in the same way, you are then to seek to forgive others. I want to give you a whistle-stop tour of ABCDEF amount of ways that God has forgiven us, things that the Bible teaches about the nature of God's forgiveness, and show you just quickly, imagine with you what that might mean for your forgiving and my forgiving of other people. So here's the first one. God, when he forgives, never excuses wrong. Some of us feel that we don't want to forgive things that have happened to us because that would feel like we're saying that it doesn't matter. But you look at how God forgives and it's the complete opposite. In fact, God only forgives things that are inexcusably bad. That's the concept of forgiveness. He never sweeps things under the carpet. He never says, oh, it doesn't matter. Rather, in light of the very real seriousness of the wrongs that people do, he forgives. So to forgive, you don't need to sweep things under the carpet or lie to yourself that you weren't wronged in the first place. You were. And yet God calls you now to forgive. Secondly, he forgives sacrificially, bearing the cost in himself. When someone wrongs us, we, you know this, have a choice about who is going to pay and someone is going to pay. When someone does wrong to me, I have the choice. Am I going to make them 
be punished by me talking about them or hating them in my mind or or getting angry with them or judging them or just being cold and dismissive of them for the next 40 years. You know, are they going to pay or am I going to somehow absorb in myself the cost? Am I going to take the hit? Am I going to swallow it and say, no, I'm not going to treat them like that. I'll take the hit. They don't need to pay. I release them. I'll take the hit and I'll forgive them. And that is exactly what God does to us. In the person of Jesus, God comes to the world and God bears sacrificially in himself the cost of our wrongdoing. He could easily put it on us. And hey, if we don't come to Jesus for forgiveness, in the end, he will put it on us if we refuse to come to him and be rescued. But God goes to great lengths to say he will bear the cost. He will put it in himself in the person of his son and bleed on the cross and die for us. How does God forgive? He forgives sacrificially, which is why it always feels like a death to forgive someone. Then he forgives completely. It says as far as the east is from the west, he's removed our sins from us. It says that he cancels the record of debt that stood against us. It means he doesn't bring things back up later to get one over us or to irritate us or when we've done something wrong he sort of gets the list out again and starts tutting no rather when God forgives it is done it is finished he forgives us completely and as should we that's why the New Testament calls us to keep no record of wrongs not store it away for a rainy day it's done forgive completely then it says that God forgives repeatedly that his mercies are new every morning that he is faithful and just to forgive our sins whenever we confess our sins to him. And so should we be ready to always repeatedly forgive. It's a high calling, but it's inescapable that, that, that that's what Jesus calls us to. Someone asked him once, should we forgive seven times? And Jesus uh, famously replies, no, 70 times seven times, which I, I think it would be clear is not right. You do the maths and then you make a list of how many times you're forgiving and then it's over. Rather, ask someone geeky in your church for the reason. It's the language of infinite amounts of time. Seven is this number of perfect wholeness in the Bible. And so 70 times seven, it's like just there forever. We forgive, we forgive, we forgive again. Doesn't mean there aren't consequences. And in serious sin that's repeated, of course, perhaps there need to be boundaries or even criminal involvement. And what the Bible says doesn't go against any of that. That's crucial. But in our hearts, repeatedly, we offer forgiveness because we have received and do receive and will receive repeated forgiveness from God. Then it says that God forgives by active choice. I, I love that the, the Bible says uh, God remembers our sins no more. I love that idea. But I've often thought of it like his memory fades, right? Like God's got COVID brain for a bit. And so he kind of thought that he could remember that awful thing I did on that night in 2008. Um, but he can't quite bring it to mind. So he remembers our sins no more. Few. But it isn't that. God is an infinite mind. He's the brilliant mind that's sworn every brilliant mind there's ever been. He has a memory that is unfailing. And so it's not that he cannot remember our sins. Rather, it's that he decides that he will not remember our sins anymore hallelujah 
that he will not remember that thing I did on that night in 2008. He, re he refuses to dwell on it. He acts and decides that that is not how he will treat me, but he has treated Christ in my place. And now he, though he can clearly remember, he will not remember. He decides. And this is relevant for us because it means we don't have to wait until we've forgotten or we've just moved on or we feel this fuzzy feeling towards the person who was awful to us. Rather, we engage our will, our decision-making centre, and we say, I decide. Again, 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 I decide. It's hard, but I decide. I will not treat that person as they deserve. I will decide to forgive them. And then the last thing I want to say on this is that God forgives in attitude, even when the offer of reconciliation is rejected. Think about this. Will everybody be forgiven? What do you think? It's a big question. The Bible's pretty clear. No. Many, many people will die having rejected the offer of forgiveness from God. The offer goes out and is extended to you today if you don't know Jesus. But many, many people refuse to accept it. And so is God kind of telling us we've got to forgive everyone and, and reconcile with everyone, but even he doesn't? Well, think about it. I'd say that God in his attitude at his end has decided to do everything to enable forgiveness and reconciliation to take place. But ultimately, it is a choice from two parties, and he gives that freedom to us to decide whether we come back to him. And that is true of all forgiveness and all reconciliation. I can't control whether someone comes back to me and reconciles with me. I can't control oh, how they even acknowledge whether they've done anything wrong. I can't control a whole load of things. But just as Jesus prayed on the cross, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. So should my attitude be one that longs for them to be forgiven and reconciled. Even if we cannot con control the outcome, we must embody the spirit of forgiveness. But God has forgiven us. Now, we're nearly out of time. And I want to end in uh, just one more thing that links our forgiveness and God's forgiveness, which is that uh, our forgiveness of others is to be motivated by God's forgiveness of us, or it is the overflow of God's forgiveness of us. And Jesus saying this, uh, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us, is part of the Lord's Prayer, which we know is a, a prayer or a style of prayer that he imagines us praying daily. We know that because it says, give us this day our daily bread in the next few verses. And so this isn't kind of a, a one-off thing. We know that this is a, a way of relating to God that is meant to be very, very, very regular, continuous. We're always coming to God with these sorts of prayers, which means that he imagines us as Christians, not simply grinning and bearing it and going out into the world to forgive unendingly. Rather, he imagines us regularly coming to God and receiving again and experiencing again the waves of his mercy and his forgiveness. Experiencing, as one parable puts it, the amazing debt of millions and millions and millions that we owe to him being washed and remembering that and rejoicing in that. 
and, and coming to God and, and saying, Holy Spirit, let me experience that again, and confessing again, and being washed again, and, and living close to the cross so that we are humble and confessing our sin and contrite, and yet bold because we know that we've been so forgiven. And when we're doing that all the time, then we forgive others from the overflow. If you struggle to forgive, and you hear this talk and you know really you got some work to do on this one. There are people you need to get in touch with. There are steps you need to take. There are things you need to do. Don't simply grin and bear it. Rather come to God and remember again, or perhaps for the first time, experience the forgiveness of this merciful, astounding saviour who longs that none should perish and stands ready to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and forgive our sins. Come to him, come to him right now. And then go out and bear the fruit of forgiving others. Let the fountain flow through you. And so may many lives be changed by Christians who dare to do the costly thing of forgiving other people.